Today we're going to move on to the letters and Revelation, starting out how how they came to be written, and then we're going to get into the canon issues, that is, how do we determine which books are inspired by God. We've talked at some length about the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Well, looking at the letters, what are the various reasons for writing? And we, we're not going to do a whole New Testament survey, but I just thought it would be interesting to go briefly through a few of the letters from Paul and others to see exactly why they wrote their letters. What, what were the occasions of these letters? The Romans was an introduction from Paul to a church that he hadn't visited but hoped to visit soon. Look at verse 9, Romans 1, verse 9. Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And if you look at the history in the book of Acts, you see Paul's various missionary journeys, and he goes to many places in Asia Minor and through Macedonia, Greece, and so forth, but never makes it to Rome except at the end of the book of Acts as a prisoner. And so Paul had had longed, and this, this letter was written before Paul actually made it to Rome as a prisoner, he longs to meet these Christians. Now, he knew some of the believers at this church through his travels, but for the most part, he didn't know them, and he hadn't been to this church before in Rome, but longed to be there. Now, we have Romans with an unknown church, but on the other hand, we have then 1 Corinthians, a church that Paul knew very well. In fact, Acts 18 says that Paul was there for 18 months. So this is a church that he had planted, and he knew the people very well. But this church was troubled, and he, he knew the difficulties of the church, and again, we won't go through the whole thing, but we have there a very different tone. If you were writing a letter to somebody or, or a place, you, a church you didn't know, you'd have a different tone, different maybe things you would address than if the church you, you knew well, you knew the people, you knew the troubles of that church. And so Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the church again he knew well, both First and Second Corinthians, for specific issues he knew about in that church as he was away. Galatians. Galatians is a letter to another church that he had in that church as Galatia is a region, not a not a church. But these are churches that he knew well in Galatia. Verse two mentions them. Galatians one verse two to the churches of Galatia. But then he goes to verse six. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And so then he goes on in this letter to talk about what the gospel truly is. So in Rome, he doesn't know the church. Uh, he had never been there. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, he goes, the church at Corinth he knew well, addressing mostly behavioral issues. In Galatia, these churches in this region are churches that he probably planted in some cases. But this is a doctrinal issue. This is a fundamental gospel issue. Not so much what, how they behaved, but what they were teaching, what they were believing. A Philippians is, at least in part, a thank you note for a gift that these not very rich believers in Philippi had given to Paul. If you go to the 
last portion of this short letter, Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul says that, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now you, at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before but lacked opportunity. These are referring to monetary gifts. Verse 11 says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Verse 15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church, by the way, Philippi was in Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So Epaphroditus was a messenger from the church of Philippi to bring this money to uh, to Paul. By the way, Paul is in prison. We said earlier in chapter 1, Paul is imprisoned at this time. So I, I know as a kid, I was given a gift, say, by grandparents or uncles or whatever, and my your parents would always say, what, after you get the gift? Write a letter saying thank you. And I always said, no, I didn't, didn't want to do it. It was too much. But here we have an example of Paul. Maybe we can use this on our kids. <laughs> Paul sent a, a letter to thank the Philippians for their gift. And so we can also do much the same thing. So a, a happier occasion in the Philippian letter than with the Galatian letter for sure and the, the Corinthian letters. Now another circumstance in Paul's life this is at the end of his life, Second Timothy. Second Timothy, Paul is again in prison, although this is a separate time as far as you can tell. Paul was imprisoned earlier at, at the end of the book of Acts. We believe he was released and then came back to prison, and then that's where he wrote Second Timothy. But now, Paul is writing not to a church or a group of churches. He's writing to an individual, in fact, a, a man that he <clears throat> he had taught, he had preached the gospel to, he had discipled him, he'd raised him up, he'd been a companion of Paul. Paul knew him well, he loved him much, but Paul has some concerns, and this is a a man at the end of his life who has his protege, one of the men he loves most in the world. What is he going to say to him? Especially, it sounds like Timothy was prone to, to, to weakness, to fear. And so we see so often in the second letter of Paul to Timothy, Paul exhorting Timothy to keep going. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. And that's what I was going through this letter, by the way. I saw so many exhortations from Paul. I can't read them all. But just listen, verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul just keeps piling up these exhortations as to what he wants Timothy to do as Paul goes off the scene fairly soon. Chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. So here we have four generations of Christians, you might say. Paul teaching Timothy. Timothy teaches other men who will be able to teach men further. This is a good sort of foundational verse for seminaries, even discipling in our own church. We want to pass this on. We don't want the Christian doctrine, these things we have heard, to stop. Our generation we want them to go on from generation to generation until Christ comes back. Chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent, Timothy. Even chapter 4, verse 2, skipping over a bunch, Paul says here to preach the word. In fact, verse four, or verse 1 of chapter 4 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing, his appearing in his kingdom. Here's the the solemnity with which he's telling Timothy to do this thing, to preach the word. I solemnly charge you. I don't have any more words to say. I'm about to die. But preach the word. Keep preaching the word. So Paul is exhorting Timothy, preach the word. Do all these things. Hold firm to the faith. But Paul also has personal touches in this short book. Look at verse 9. He wants to see Timothy. Timothy is away. Timothy is uh, building his church. Um, and then we have Paul in prison, ready to die. Paul says, make every effort, verse 9, to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. So Paul's uh, friends, former friends, have scattered he says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak which I left Troas, at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. So as Timothy travels from Ephesus to, uh, to see Paul in Rome, you're going to go through Troas, grab the parchments, grab my books, so I can study. Paul still wanted to study God's word, even in prison in Rome. So Timothy is exhorted to do these things. They've got a personal touch. In verse 21, Paul says, make every effort to come before winter. It was hard to travel in the wintertime. If, if Timothy had delayed his trip, he might not actually make it to, to get to Paul. So he had to travel when the weather was good, when the winds were favorable, if you're going to travel by sea. And so you want to be very careful how you plan your trip. You could just hop on a plane and go from place to place, of course. And then there's one last Pauline, or actually two, what Pauline epistle, uh, Titus, you're in Second Timothy, just look to Titus now. Paul's purpose in writing to Titus is this, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So this is earlier, this book of Titus, to Titus, is earlier than Second Timothy. Paul is not in prison at this point. But say, Titus, go from place to place in Crete and appoint elders in these churches that we've already planted. So uh, that was his purpose for writing to Titus. How is Titus going to determine what are the right sorts of men to be elders in the churches in Crete? And then Philemon, another personal letter. Very short book. It's a personal note from Paul to Philemon. You might remember the story that Paul has met a young man named Onesimus. Onesimus had been Philemon's slave. And God's, God's providence, Paul meets him while Paul's in prison. 
and Onesimus has become a Christian, and now he asks Philemon to free Philemon's slave and his now brother in Christ. Verse 10 of this little letter of Philemon. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but is now useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So Paul meets Onesimus, Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. Paul has a real heart for this young man, but he can't keep Onesimus because Onesimus, by Roman law, belongs to Philemon. So Paul says, I'm, going to, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, because that's the right thing to do, but we, I, I would trust that you will release this young man and, and then allow him his full freedom to proclaim Christ and to minister to me. Now, what about Peter? Let's look at First Peter. First Peter, and we'll see that it's written as an encouragement to Christians in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. Now, verse 1, uh, Peter says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he mentions in verse 6 that you are distressed by various trials. So these believers in Asia Minor are distressed by trials, they're being persecuted for their faith, and Peter has some words of encouragement and exhortation to them. And then Jude, this last letter we'll look at for right now. Jude. We don't know Jude's target audience, but what was the occasion of Jude's letter? Well, verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, so Jude wanted to write to these believers about common salvation. Now, I would, for my part, love to see what Jude had to say. Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ, what, what did Jude have to say about salvation? But we'll have to wait to heaven to ask him what he was going to write. Uh, but instead, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And he mentions these false teachers who have crept into the church. So while salvation is important, something more critical to deal with right now is these false teachers who have crept into the church you need to stand against these false teachers. And so that was the occasion of Jude writing to whoever he is writing to. Now, when it comes to the, let's look at the reasons for writing, coming to the process of writing. And again, we won't look at all of them, but I just want to bring out some details of a few to represent the whole. Why did these men write, and what was their process of writing? Now, we kind of mentioned this before as a way to... Uh, sort of test people's Bible knowledge and maybe fool them a bit. As you've asked most Christians who are educated at all, you'd say, who wrote the book of Romans? And the answer would be Paul. And they say, no, it's not. And you can seem really smart. But I, don't, don't do that. It, it's, just, it's not very nice, perhaps, to, to lord it over people. But you can look at Romans 16, verse 22. It says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So the one who actually wrote the book of Romans was Tertius. Uh, we don't know anything about him. He's only mentioned here. His name means third. It's a Latin word meaning third. Maybe he was the third son. Some think he may have been uh, Italian and acquainted with the church in Rome. So while Paul is writing this letter, actually he's dictating this letter to Tertius. Maybe Tertius knew some of the Roman people. And so he 
he could give Paul some insights into what they might need to hear. So Tertius was his his scribe, his secretary. The, the fancy term is amanuensis. And it may be that Paul had an infirmity that prevented him from writing neatly, or he was something of a sloppy writer. Now, if I want, let's say we have a, a, a birthday card or something else to, to send to somebody, I ask Joan to actually write the letter for the most part, and I'll sign it because my handwriting is so messy, I have to write very carefully so people can actually read it. If I want it to be read, I ask Joan to write it, and then I might sign my name. Maybe Paul was something like that too, where his writing wasn't the greatest. Tertius may have been a trained scribe, and so why don't you just ask this guy who knows what he's doing. And since Paul is a preacher anyway, maybe he would prefer to dictate his letters. So Paul is working with Tertius to write his letter to the church in Rome. First Corinthians... 1 Corinthians, again, remember that Paul knew this church well. He'd been there for a year and a half. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul talks about his writing process here. Uh, Verse 19 um, says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. So these are real personal connections to them. And he says, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. So it looks like maybe... Paul just took the pen from his scribe. We don't know for sure there was a scribe with this first letter to Corinth, but he at least wrote this verse 21 in his own hand and maybe a few additional verses here at the end as, as a way of signing off. Uh, Galatians 6. We already talked again about Galatians, and this is a, a very uh, strong letter to the churches in Galatia. If you look at Galatians chapter 6, Paul here says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He writes with large letters. Some think that perhaps Paul wrote this entire letter to the churches in Galatia himself to show how important it was, how urgent it was. He's heard a report about these churches in Galatia leaving the true gospel for a false gospel. So Paul just grabs a a pen and dashes off this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write to them. And maybe it took up more space than normal. It wasn't a a very finely written letter, but these large letters, Paul's just writing quickly and, and largely to to get this letter out to them, perhaps. Uh, Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Yeah, and so probably Paul did not write the whole letter of Colossians himself, but grabbed the pen at the end and then wrote a personal note here to, to say his farewells. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it might be different letter by letter, but we have Paul and Sosthenes saying First Corinthians, and Sosthenes was a man who was well-known. He had been at the church at Corinth, and while they're sort of together, there's lots of these I. So Paul says, I, I, I. So it's sort of like, um, well, say for our Christmas letter, um, I don't usually write those. Joan writes them, and it's sort of we, we, we. It's just, this is from the Douglas family, but Joan actually wrote it. But it's got 
our names on it. So that, that's probably what he did in most cases. In fact, likely all the cases I can think of offhand, when he mentions Timothy or Sosthenes or somebody else, um, Sylvanus, that Paul, it's really Paul's letter, but he includes these men uh, because they're known to the churches. It would mean something to them. And certainly they would be in full agreement with Paul. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, again, talking about the process of writing. This is a, a special case in this church in Thessalonica. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so this church at Thessalonica had apparently gotten a letter from somebody who claimed to be Paul, who had said some things that contradicted things that Paul had said earlier, and now the church is shaken up about the return of Christ. The day of the Lord has come already. You said, Paul, this wasn't going to happen until later, so Paul has to straighten out, undo the work of this letter. And so we have uh, verse 17 of chapter 3. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, he's referring just to the greeting, so it's probably just the end of this letter. This is a, with my own hand, this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So, next time you get a letter from me, Church of Thessalonica, while the, the other handwriting might be somebody else, look at the end. This is my handwriting. If you do the analysis and don't see this handwriting looks like me, don't believe this letter is for me. It would be easy to forge letters in those days, wouldn't it? Um, you couldn't call somebody up, hey, Paul, did you send a letter to the church at Thessalonica about the day of the Lord coming already? It would take uh, days, weeks, even months to get a letter to Paul and back about what is going on. And so to mitigate against these forgeries, Paul writes this greeting at the end and says, this is the way I write. Check the writing next time. Check the signature to make sure it makes sense. One last letter from Paul for now, and we'll look at Philemon, again, talking about how Paul writes these letters, some long, some very short. Philemon, verse 19, Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. That is, if Onesimus has stolen any money from you, has defrauded you in any way, I will repay it, not to mention that you owe your, to me even your own life as well. It may be in this case, it's a short letter, personal letter. Uh, by the way, Philemon was probably attached to the letter, went with the letter to the, the church in um, Colossae, because that's where Philemon was. So Paul is writing with his own hand to show how important it was. It's a personal letter. I'm not just dictating this to some secretary as some... Uh, routine, unimportant thing. This is something that means a lot to me, Philemon. I'm writing it in my own hand to let you know how critical this is to me that you listen and do what I ask you to do. Now, Peter also used a secretary and amanuensis, a, a scribe for himself, in this first letter, 1 Peter 5.12. Peter says, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So again, you could say, who wrote the book of Peter, First Peter? You say, Sylvanus. Actually wrote it. Sylvanus is another name for Silas. You might remember Silas. He traveled extensively with Paul in the book of Acts. Remember when Paul was in the Philippian jail singing in Acts 16, who was with him? Silas. 
So Paul knew Silas well, traveled with him for a long time. Uh, Peter also knew Silvanus, and Silvanus was with Peter at this point. And writing down the words of Peter. Um, in fact, if you look at First Peter, now I'm not equipped to do this myself, but scholars who look at First Peter and Second Peter notice there's a difference in style between the two books, and some to the point where they even say, "Well, Peter could not have written Second Peter because it's much different than First Peter." But it may be that if you were using a scribe, as Peter might have done, as he was writing First Peter or through Silvanus or Silas, he, he may not have just said, okay, Silas, get your pen, I'm just going to speak for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and you write everything I say. But it may, he may have talked to Silas, Silvanus, and said, what do you think, how do you think we could express this better? If, if Silvanus was a more erudite man, he was, he was a scribe, perhaps well, uh, well-spoken, he could write well, and so Peter might want to use this man's knowledge of how to express himself better. If he had Silas, Silvanus, and First Peter, and didn't have him when he wrote Second Peter, the style might well be different, wouldn't it? Less less polished. Um, plus, there's a difference in theme. First Peter is mostly about comforting suffering Christians. Second Peter is about dealing with false teachers. Watch out for false teachers. So if you have a different... Uh, reason for writing your letter, as Paul did, that the style of Galatians is very different from the style, say, of 1 Corinthians or Romans. Whether you know the church, whether the church is, is a, a solid church or a difficult church, like the church in Corinth, or, or a solid church like the one in Philippi, the way you write will be different depending on your audience. So just the fact that there's style differences between First and Second Peter doesn't mean that, that they're not written by the same man. Let's look at the book of Revelation. Again, talking about the process of writing. How were these things written? Well, in the book of Revelation, it's a little easier because Revelation is is much like some of the Old Testament prophetical books. Now, we have the, the history books in the Old Testament where it's this happened, this happened, this happened. But there's other places where it says, thus says the Lord. And so the the prophets were writing down what God said verbatim, putting it in in the scroll form to give to God's people. And there's much that same sort of thing in many portions of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It says that I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So, a good portion of this revelation to John is John just writing down what's told to him. Jesus says this, an angel says this, he writes it down. Or, he sees this vision and writes down what's in the vision. In fact, there are Well, in this case, he's commanded by Christ himself. And in the book of Revelation, there are 12 commands to John to write this. But interestingly, in chapter 10, as John gets this revelation, verse 4 says, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was to write, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. So these peals of thunder come, and they say something 
John's ready to write it down as he's been told to, but now he's told to not write. So there's some things that were revealed to John, but were not revealed to us, and we'll have to wait till heaven, perhaps, to find out what those things are. So, maybe not briefly, but that's that's how, in some cases, we see the reasons for writing the letters in the New Testament and the process of writing. You have a, you know, a secretary, perhaps, or sometimes writing with your own hand, or, in John's case, a vision from, from Christ himself and being told to write down what God had said. You'll notice in the New Testament, there are very few places where God says, write this down. Paul did not get a vision from God say to say, Paul, write a letter to the Philippians or to the Corinthian church. It's not as though God said, this is my word to this church, Paul, write it down, or to Peter. Now, it was the case in Revelation 2 and 3 with, with John. But these are men, in the most part, who had a desire to communicate to a church or to a group of people, a group of churches, and God had providentially put them in a place where there was a situation, whether it be a gift, or there's a trouble in the church, false teachers, or just wanting to, to send a letter to say, I've heard a lot about your church, I'd love to visit you someday, like the church in Rome, but I can't get there yet, but this is what I will say when I get there. These desires in Paul's heart, in, in Jude, Peter, whoever, they, they want to speak the truth about Christ to other people, but it's not a, a dictation, not a thus says the Lord, and yet God uses these mechanisms, these men, to preserve his word, to communicate his word to his people, and down to us in our own day. Well, let's look now uh, briefly... We'll start anyway on the canon of the New Testament. Now remember the word canon. Canon is a word we use to talk about the, it's a word that means rule. And it's, it should be ready to go. No, no, I'll, I'll take care of it, thanks. It means rule. It's, it's the, the standard by which we say these are the words of God and these ones are not. And we started a few weeks ago talking about the Old Testament canon. How do we know which books are in the Old Testament canon? And now we'll talk about the New Testament a bit. And I've read this quote a couple of times before. It's from Wayne Grudem. Important. How do we? What's what's the importance of understanding God? What, what's God's word? He says this: to add or subtract from God's words would be to prevent God's people from obeying Him fully, for the commands that were subtracted would not be known to the people. And words that were added might require extra things of the people which God had not commanded. So we want to know what God's commands are. If we don't get them all, then we're not doing what God wants. If we get too many, we're doing perhaps what God doesn't want us to do. Uh, the precise determination of the extent of the canon of Scripture is therefore of the utmost importance. If we are to trust and obey God absolutely, we must have a collection of words that are, we are certain are God's own words to us. If there are any sections of Scripture about which we have doubts whether they are God's words or not, we will not consider them to have absolute divine authority, and we will not trust them as much as we would trust God himself. So if I get in the pulpit and I say, thus might say the Lord, there's, there's not really much point to that. Uh, we want to say, thus says the Lord. We want it to be the, the ground of what we do as a church here, and what we teach. Now, when we looked at the the canon of the Old Testament. How do we know what, what are the Old Testament books that are part of God's word? 
it was in a sense easier because we ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus and the apostles saw as God's word? When Paul, uh, Paul says, all scriptures inspired by God are Jesus reasoned from the scriptures, spoke from the scriptures. What were the scriptures to Jesus and to Paul and to the, the twelve? Well, we can determine that historically pretty well, and that's where we get the books we call our Old Testament, the 39 books that we have in our Protestant Bibles. But when we have the New Testament, it's not as though we have Jesus saying at the end of, of the book of Revelation, now, therefore, we have now 27 books of the New Testament, and these are all the ones that there, there are. There was, it's a more historical outworking of the process, and we'll look at it again today and next time as well. F.F. Bruce says this, about this. He says, The Old Testament is accredited by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ in a way, in the very nature of the case, does not apply to the new. For it was the Old Testament scriptures that constituted Christ's Bible. He accepted it's a history and it's as a preparation for himself and taught his disciples to find him in it. He used it to justify his mission and to eliminate the mystery of his cross. He drew from it many of the examples and most of the categories of his gospel. He reinforced the essence of its law and restored many of its ideals. But above all, he fed his own soul with its contents and in the great crises of his life sustained himself upon it as upon the living and sovereign word of God. Obviously, no body of literature ever had its credentials confirmed by a higher authority. So Jesus says, this is a scripture and scripture cannot be broken. Well, then we... Don't break it. F.F. Bruce continues, Does this mean then that we receive the New Testament on lower authority than the old? Not really. It only means that the impartation of Christ's authority to the new is less immediately apparent. But when we look into the matter, we find that he who accredited the Old Testament retrospectively accredited the New Testament prospectively. The fourth evangelist relates how Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, promised his disciples to send them the Holy Spirit, his other self, of whom he said, among other things, he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. He shall guide you into all the truth, and he shall declare unto you the things which are to come. The New Testament, Christian believe, Christians believe, is the written deposit of the special fulfillment of these words of Christ in the life and witness of his apostles. Now, we've been talking about the process of writing and disseminating the various writings of the New Testament. So, here's, the, here's a map. Hopefully you can see this uh, clearly enough. And we don't know for sure where all of the portions of the New Testament were written. We know in some cases Paul will tell us, for example, we know where it was written. But when it comes to the Gospels, this is what tradition says. Uh, Matthew, here on the right, may have written from Syrian Antioch. This is the Antioch, the, the important one in the New Testament. And he may have written to a, a strong Jewish audience. It's not too far from Jerusalem. There's a fairly large group of Jewish believers in Antioch. In fact, remember the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Mark, on the other hand, was probably written in Rome. So it's off this map over here somewhere. So Rome here on, in the west, and we have Antioch in the east. We have Luke, who wrote to a man called Theophilus, which means friend of God, and we don't know exactly who Theophilus was. It might have been a pseudonym. We don't know where Luke was from, or where Luke was written from, or, or even where Luke himself was from. But when you look at the book of Acts, we see 
Paul in Troas, and that's when we see these we sections of the book of Acts. So in the earlier portions, it said Paul did this, Paul did that. But in Troas, for a time anyway, the book of Acts says we did this and we did that. So here's Troas here, um, not too far from ancient Troy. So we have Antioch here in the east, we have uh, Rome in the west, we have Troas kind of in the middle, that may be where... Uh, Luke was from. It may have been where the gospel was written. We don't know again for sure. Uh, and then John, according to Irenaeus, who came sometime after John, wrote his gospel in Ephesus. So we, again, have a more central location to the gospel. So when we have early Christians trying to understand what is it that this man Jesus did, those who weren't eyewitnesses of it, we have the apostles, we have Paul, we have uh, Luke, who wasn't an eyewitness, but he, he investigated things thoroughly. We have Mark, who wasn't eyewitness, but he knew Paul, or Peter, rather. And so we have, in various portions of this area, area of the world, where they could get these Gospels of Christ. So you imagine, as they were written, the, the local church would have them. Whatever, wherever they were, they would be copied from place to place, and eventually spread out through the known world at that, at that time. But that's how God providentially got the Gospels going from place to place, sort of from the outside in the middle, in and out. Now the letters, we have the book of James, perhaps the first New Testament book written, maybe about 45 AD, when the church was still largely Jewish. Remember, James was the head of the church in Jerusalem, so way down here. Um, Even before the gospel had gone that far. But he does speak to those uh, who were dispersed or scattered and so this work would have to be circulated. These, this letter from James to these scattered believers couldn't go to just one place because the believers were scattered. So there might be copies made and sent to various portions of where, where the new Christians might be. Of course, we have Rome, the letter to the church at Rome. Again, off the side of the map here, about up there. We have Greece, where the Corinthians were. Here's Corinth. Here's Athens nearby. So we have Corinth here. We have Macedonia, up north, we have Philippi, you know that place in Thessalonica up here. Here's the Berea, remember the Bereans were the ones who were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. So all this section up here north uh, in Macedonia. Uh, we have Galatia, I mentioned before it's not a city, it's a region here, sort of central, what is today, Turkey, Asia Minor. And I mentioned also before that... Um, there's these regions of churches, but there's some discussion as to whether the Galatian letter was written to the people in Galatia in the north or in the south. It was part of Galatia, and Paul could have written to either group. We're not sure exactly which portion of this large region Paul was writing to at that time. Um, Titus, remember where Titus was going to help uh, establish elders in the church? Remember where that was? I read it a little bit earlier. I know I'm throwing a lot of data at you. Right, Crete, here's this you know, relatively long, skinny island. You can see there's several cities on here, just on this one map. And so there would have been multiple churches, and so Titus was going to traverse this island from place to place to find the churches and to find men who would be worthy elders in those places. We also have here on the map the western part of Asia Minor here. Some, If you can see some of these places, we have... Ephesus, we know well from the, the book of Ephesus. Colossae here. You might remember some of the seven churches of Asia. We have 
Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus, and so forth. So we have these these places in Western Asia Minor that that Paul wrote to and that John wrote to in the book of Revelation. Um, yeah, so uh, Colossae, of course, church at Colo- the letter to the church in Colossians, but also Philemon lived in Colossae, right around here. Uh, Revelation was written from the island of Patmos. You see a very small place here, not too far from Ephesus. All these seven churches of Revelation are on the coast or, or, or in, in, inland here from Patmos. So when John wrote his book of Revelation, it could go somehow from Patmos to Ephesus and be distributed around this place. And so you can just sort of imagine yourself, how were these works distributed. And so Paul writes a letter to the church in Colossae, or to Ephesus, that might have been a circular letter going to other churches, or to the church at Philippi. And so these churches would say, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And they would make a copy of that. Maybe somebody takes a letter from Paul to Philippi, and he travels down here to Corinth, or over here to Asia Minor. And so that's how these letters spread from, or the Gospels, or the book of Revelation spread from place to place to place. As the, the the Christians of that time got to understand them and, and, and benefit from them. Well, it is about time for me to stop. I wanted to talk about a man named Marcion. He's a heretic, though, so we can be with the next week. Um, sorry, I told my family I was going to talk about Marcion today. They'd be very disappointed, I know. They can hear about him on the way home if they're really good. There are more if they're really bad, I think. Okay, well, any questions before we close this? Sorry, I went a little long, but hopefully it's worthwhile. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Did did these men know they're writing God's word? And I think in the, in the main, no. And Paul had a, an issue he wanted to write about, and he wrote it from his his wisdom, his experience, and his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But did he realize that this is inspired by God? As when he wrote Second Timothy three sixteen, did he know he was talking about his own his own words? Um, I, I don't think in the, that's generally the case. But they had an occasion to write it, and God by his spirit, spoke through them. He inspired those words, but it, they didn't necessarily know it. It wasn't like some sort of automatic writing where they say, thus says the Lord, and they wrote it down. <clears throat> Sorry, Bridget. Okay. Sure. Yeah. It just as if you had caught the Apostle Paul, you started rolling tape just as he began to dictate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Tom. 
Yeah. Yeah, we don't have time for this right now, but you go through the, the missionary journeys of Paul, and as you say, he's from Tarsus, but educated a Jew, sent out from Antioch, so they're not too far apart, a long, long way to walk, perhaps, but when you look at the first missionary journey, he's kind of going along here, these portions that are kind of on the way, he might have been familiar with them as a young man, and churches that were sort of in his backyard, you might say, uh, from being from Tarsus, and places that he could communicate well and travel well as he went from place to place. And then as his opportunities expanded, and God called him, remember the division to come to Macedonia, um, that, that expanded as he, he went further to the west, north, and back down through Greece, and then ultimately to Rome, yeah. Yeah, and that's why we have, we call this Syrian Antioch, see Syria here, Antioch, and this is called Pisidian Antioch. So we have Pisidia here, Pisidian Antioch. So yeah, it can be confusing which Antioch you're talking about. Generally, it's going to be the one in Syria. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, things like Caesarea, there's a number of those, D- different places, especially named after Caesars, because you want to curry favor with the emperor. So you name a city after him. Well, then before you know it, there's Caesareas or those kinds of things all over the place. Just like we have lots of Springfields or things like that around in the U.S. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even yeah, in Philadelphia, we have other places that we have names after in our own time. All right. Is that enough? Your head's full? <laughs> okay. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this... <clears throat> series of lessons about how your word may have spread from place to place. Thank you for inspiring these men, whether they knew it or not, to write down your word, to have these occasions providentially, to speak about a situation in the churches in Galatia or in in Corinth or in Philippi. <clears throat> a thank you note could be a part of God's word handed down to us and can encourage us to this day. We pray that you'd help us to love your word more as we understand better how it came to to be disseminated through history to us. Thank you that we have it in our own hands, in our own language, for the blessing it is, for, for the, the nourishment it provides us, that it's your eternal word given to us through the hands of uh, weak men, and yet you preserved it for your sake by your spirit. Help us to love it more. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.